According to a May 1st, 2001 article in NPR, the United States has a long history of so-called legal public executions. The last one was carried out in Owensboro, Kentucky in 1936 when Rainey Bethia was hanged after his conviction for the rape and murder of a 70-year-old woman. Hundreds of reporters and photographers, some from as far away as New York and Chicago, were sent to Owensboro to cover what was then the country's first hanging conducted by a woman. At least 20,000 people descended on the town to witness the execution. Gathea walked toward the gallows shortly after sunrise and was pronounced dead at around 5.45 a.m. that same day. In 1936, reporters blasted what they called the carnival in Owensboro. Many scholars say Bethia's execution and the coverage it received led to a banning of public executions in America. However, that will change with the closed-circuit television coverage of Timothy McVeigh's execution. The convicted Oklahoma City bomber is scheduled to die by lethal injection May 16th at a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. 1,300 media representatives plan to cover the execution, while survivors of the 1995 bombing, family members, and rescue workers will be able to see it via closed-circuit TV in Oklahoma City. McVeigh himself has requested that his execution be televised. Writing in a public letter to the Daily Oklahoman that he wants to hold a true public execution. Well, McVeigh's execution was postponed until June, but it, it was carried out as anticipated. Public executions are no longer held in the United States, but they are still the norm in some parts of the world. In fact, an article in this week's State Journal Register reported that executions worldwide increased by 53% in 2022 from a year earlier. The article didn't state that the executions were public, but most likely they were. It's generally thought that public executions have an excellent effect on the crime rate. And something Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes about the danger of not executing a sentence quickly may affirm that to be true. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. But be that as it may, most of us, I'm sure, would not want to witness an execution. We wouldn't want that image etched into our memories. But there is one execution that we must keep fresh in our minds. 
We didn't actually witness it because it took place 2,000 years ago, but it has had an eternal effect on us. It not only secured our salvation, but also provides us with the motive to live a life that's pleasing to God. And the motive isn't fear of punishment, nearly so much as it is gratitude for the one who died. That execution, of course, was the execution of our Lord. Today we come to the record of his execution in the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. John takes us to the place of execution, shares with us the method used, and calls our attention to the inscription that was posted at the time of execution. He wants us to become witnesses of the most important public execution in history. And he begins by simply taking us to the place. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Four legionnaires and a centurion were generally given the responsibility of carrying out the order of execution. They would begin by leading the condemned man through the streets of the city, taking the longest possible route to the place of execution. And they did this for two reasons. First, to serve as an example because the condemned man usually wore a placard around his neck spelling out his crime. And secondly, to give opportunity for someone to come to his defense if they had evidence that he had been unjustly convicted. There's little doubt that it was in this manner that Jesus was led through the streets of Jerusalem. But John does note something very significant when he writes, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out. I believe this is his subtle way of pointing out that Jesus was going of his own accord. As he was led to the streets of Jerusalem, he was no man's captive. He could have left the soldiers behind in a blaze of glory, but he didn't. He knew where he was going and he knew why. John then makes it clear that when Jesus went out, he was bearing his own cross. And it was customary for the convicted man to carry his own cross. Now, whether he was carrying the entire cross or just the cross beam, we don't know. We don't even know for sure the, the shape of the cross. It may have been in the shape of an X or a T or in the shape of a traditional cross. The type of cross that was used really isn't important other than for iconic purposes. What does matter is who was carrying the cross. And just as Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice, so Jesus carried his own cross. John doesn't, however, tell us that Jesus was physically unable to carry it the whole way. 
Apparently, he had been scourged more than usual, and even the prodding and whipping couldn't keep him going, and the soldiers knew he couldn't go on. So Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry part of the weight of the cross for Jesus. Now, John assumed his readers knew that. The earlier gospel writers all told of it. All he wanted us to do was to call attention to the fact that Jesus did carry his own cross. He then notes that Jesus was led to a place called the place of a skull. (laughs) What a name. In Hebrew, it's Golgotha. In Latin, Calvaria. In Greek, Cranium. They all mean the same thing. They mean skull. The place of a skull seems very appropriate for a place of execution. But we're not certain why it was called that. Early tradition says it was because Adam's skull had been found there. I kind of doubt that. I think that sounds more like the claims of modern paleontologists in their quest for the remains of man's earliest ancestors. It was in their imagination. Some suggest the place was littered with skulls, but it's doubtful that Jews would have let the land be so polluted. Others say it's because the place resembled a skull. In 1849, Otto Thenius thought a 30-foot rock ledge some 250 yards northeast of the Damascus Gate resembled a skull. And it was located near tombs and a garden and a road. Many believe that this was the site of the crucifixion, and today it's known as Gordon's Calvary. Others believe the site is inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a church built over a 14-foot hill that Helena, the mother of Constantine, determined to be the site of the crucifixion in 326 AD, 300 years after the event. Now, this hill, which rises to the height of a balcony inside the church, has also been said to resemble a skull. Now, the site is now inside the city wall, but there's evidence to suggest that the wall has been moved and the hill used to be outside the wall. Bottom line is we don't know for sure where the crucifixion took place, but we do know it took place. And while we can't be sure of its location, we do know it was a place of execution. And we do know the method used. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Jesus had said he would be lifted up. And the psalmist wrote that his hands and feet would be pierced. That's the very description of crucifixion. And as we noted a couple weeks ago, if the Jews had the right to execute, they would have stoned Jesus. But the right to execute anyone was taken away from them in A.D. 30. And the Romans practiced crucifixion. I'm sure liberal scholars would say that was merely a coincidence. Anyway, historians tell us that the Persians originated crucifixion for religious reasons. They didn't want to contaminate the earth with bodies of criminals, so they nailed them to crosses 
left them to die, and let the vultures eat them. The Romans didn't do it for religious reasons. They just found it to be very effective. It created a horrible death, and it was a powerful visual lesson to other would-be criminals. Now, the gospel writers do not dwell on the details of the crucifixion. Unlike Mel Gibson, they avoided sensationalism. Everyone knew it was the means to a horribly slow and painful death. Without trying to paint a Hollywood picture, let me simply say that the convicted man was stripped naked and then nailed to a cross. Spikes were driven through his hands or his wrists and then through his feet, which were often placed one over the other. Sometimes he was provided with a peg to sit on, sometimes tied around the chest to the cross, and sometimes just left to hang there. Preceding this, he was scourged nearly to the point of death, and the crucifixion merely finished him off. Some died within hours, like our Lord, who spent six hours on the cross. Others lingered for days. It was certainly one of the most reprehensible forms of execution ever devised. And it was reserved for slaves and only the most notorious of criminals. It was never done to Roman citizens, never in Italy, only in the Roman provinces. Cicero had this to say about the thought of crucifying a Roman. It is a crime for a Roman citizen to be bound. It is a worse crime for him to be beaten. It is well-nigh parasite, the killing of your parents, for him to be killed. What am I to say if he be killed on a cross? A nefarious action such as that is incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. Certainly that was true of the crucifixion of the Son of God. It was an unbelievably horrid event. But John simply notes that Jesus was crucified. He does add that Jesus was crucified with two other men, one on either side. The other gospel writers give us more details of those two men and their exchange with Jesus, but John merely notes it, no doubt to remind his readers that being crucified between two criminals fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. It was on a cross between two criminals that Jesus died a horrible death. A death caused by extremely cruel and unusual punishment. Some years after the event, Paul focuses not only on the death of Jesus, but the horror of a death on the cross when he writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the method of our Lord's execution. Lastly, John draws our attention 
to the inscription. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It was customary for a man's name and crime to be posted on his cross. Since Jesus had been found guilty of no crime, Pilate simply stated that he was the king of the Jews. Now, the exact wording isn't known because it differs just a bit in each of the Gospels. Matthew records, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark simply says, the king of the Jews. Luke writes, this is the king of the Jews. And John writes, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, again, critics like to call this a contradiction. but It's easy to see there's really no contradiction here. They merely record the gist of what was written. But put together, it comes out, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, whether or not it was customary for such placards to be written in three languages in that trilingual society, we don't know. But we do know that Jesus' placard was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so all could read it. William Barclay, in his excellent little commentary series, writes, The inscription on Jesus' cross was in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. These were the three great languages of the ancient world, and they stood for three great nations. In the economy of God, every nation has something to teach the world. And these three great nations stood for three great contributions to the world and to world history. Greece taught us the world of beauty of form and beauty of thought. Rome taught the world law and good government. The Hebrew nation taught the world religion and the worship of the true God. The consummation of all these things is seen in Jesus. In him was a supreme beauty and the highest thought of God. In him was the law of God and the kingdom of God. In him was the very picture and image of God. All the world's seekings and strivings found their consummation in him. It was symbolic that in the three great languages of the world, Men called him king. Now, we should note that not everyone was pleased that Jesus had been called king. The chief priests strenuously objected to what Paul or what Pilate had written. They even confronted him personally about it. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They didn't want the world to assume that it was actually their king hanging on that cross. After all, they had, as they said, no king but Caesar. Pilate had no doubt intentionally phrased it that way. 
It was his way to get back at them for forcing him into a corner and crucifying Jesus in the first place. So while he had given in to their demands on the important issue, he held fast on this insignificant one. It sounds like so many of us. We crumble on the big issues of life only to make fools of ourselves by being rigid on trivial matters. And that's what Pilate did here. Even though Barclay finds what he wrote and how he wrote it symbolic, it really was of little consequence. In an attempt to save his reputation, Pilate had already given in on the big issue, and in doing so, he lost his reputation for all time. However, he here adamantly responds, What I have written, I have written. Little did he know that God had actually written the script for the events of that day. That's not to say Pilate was merely a pawn in the hands of God, doing what he had to do without a voice in the matter. But it is to say God knew what would happen and used Pilate's choices to accomplish his purposes. It had been ordained from the creation of the world that God would one day come to earth as a man and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. That Jesus did on Golgotha, the place of a skull nearly 2,000 years ago. It was there he died for me, in my place, to pay for my sin. And he did it for you as well, if you will but accept his offer to stamp paid in full on your account. It was a horrible death that he died, but it had to be. He was paying for the sins of every man, woman, and child who would ever put their trust in him. And it's the magnitude of his sacrifice that assures us there's room for all at the cross. So rest assured. There's room at the cross for you.